It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 232, The Battle of Thermopylae. Ephesians 6.10 Finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you may take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, Put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand. Stand firm. Then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Apostle Paul penned these words as he was chained to an armor-clad Roman soldier. The Roman soldier would have had imposing armor, which Paul used as inspiration for this verse. The Apostle Paul understood spiritual warfare and often compared physical elements of soldiers in warfare to enhance our understanding of spiritual warfare. In this episode, We cover one of ancient history's most famous battles, and using the principles of Paul's teachings, we compare the tactics, strategies, and outcomes of this battle to warfare in the spirit and glean wisdom from the past. The outcome of the Battle of Marathon was exuberance in Athens. The Spartans were furious they were bested by the Athenians, and they vowed to never let it happen again. Culture in Athens blossomed, and democracy had a boost in its sales. In Persia, Darius was absolutely embarrassed. He prepared his armies for revenge. He had lost battles before, so he was ready for the challenge. And at the same time, though, revolts broke out in Egypt, and Babylon was stirring. And as the armies were being assembled, King Darius, the ruler of the Persians at its territorial apex, dies. His son Xerxes becomes king, and he assembles this army and all through his vast realm to either go against Egypt or Greece. Mardonius, his friend and general, participated in part of the previous campaign in Greece, and he rises to greater popularity at this time in Susa. And a debate arises on who should they conquer, Egypt or Greece. Herodotus, the screenwriter, tells us a long tale where the winner is Greece. And Mardonius wins over Xerxes with the help of a ghost that visits Xerxes at night and persuades him to invade Greece. And, you know, that's kind of Herodotus' thing. He has some wild story to convince us on decision-making. Greece it is. 
Herodotus states 1.7 million troops converge on Greece. Modern estimates put the force as still at a staggering 250,000. Um, others say it's around 100, 150,000. Let's say it's 250, kind of picking some middle number, which was enormous for its day. Wherever it marched, lands were devastated and pillaged just for the army to survive and defeat itself. Now, Herodotus doesn't give Xerxes a lot of bonus points. Um, he spoke fairly highly about Cyrus, but Xerxes, he tends to speak pretty negative about. Uh, there's many different scenes that involve him. There's a scene where they sacrifice villagers in northern Greece uh, to petition favor of their gods, and they even bury people alive. Um, then there's a scene where one of the local kings asks the... Um, Xerxes, if his sons could be excluded from the conflict out of favor, um, especially after giving him exorbitant gifts. Um, Xerxes literally punishes this king by cutting the son that he wanted not to go to war in two and having his mar armies march between it. He's cruel. He's a cruel king. Other cruelties are attributed to him, and there's other indications of um, how odd he was throughout the book, too. Herodotus also says he had feuds with multiple wives of his, um, and we'll actually get to all of that later. Um, one of them buried noble sons alive, um, as was a Persian religious custom. Herodotus also said that uh, um, Xerxes loved his building projects, and he seems to have had a, a very large harem as well. Well, when, he, when they reach, this enormous army reaches the extent of Asia. Xerxes builds a pontoon bridge over the Hellas Point, connecting Asia and Europe at the nearest point of the Black Sea entrance. And when a storm wrecks the first attempt, he orders the waters to be beaten with whips. Xerxes would not tolerate others not bending to his will, even the sea. His soldiers marched across the bridge to Macedonia, and every state in northern Greece surrendered themselves subject to Persia. He arrived at the mountains of Greece and was forced to take a narrow passageway to arrive to get to the remainder of Greece. His navy accompanied him every step of the way, bringing provisions. In most of the upper states in Greece, they submit to Xerxes. Athens and Sparta, and the southern city-states, they don't. In fact, they even form a league of sorts. The middle territory in Greece remains neutral, but the southern territory, they're going to fight. Now, the Athenians are under the leadership of a Themistocles, who rises at this time. Recently, gold was discovered in one of its territories, and the gold was earmarked to go to a percentage to every citizen, the beauty of a democracy. But Themistocles pushed a vote for them to build 200 state-of-the-art triremes instead. And instead of the people pocketing the money, the loudest voices won, and the people voted to double the size of their navy, and just in time, the warships are complemented with marines to fight the Persians when they invade. A combined Greek fleet at one point in this campaign has over 400 ships. Still not enough, completely outnumbered, but 400 ships is a, is a, is a remarkable number for this scattered group of peoples that aren't even united to come together. So this is where the story gets interesting. And of course, our source here is, you know, Herodotus. And, and you got to love the old stories always, because there's a prophetic element. Um, you got to go with what it is in this account. There's, I, don't, I don't have anything from the Bible. 
um, saying, you know, Isaiah prophesied this. Uh, we do know Zechariah has that moment, and he and he actually sees that there's there's peace on earth, um, and all that's going to change. There's even that prophecy about the nations will be stirred and war will break out, but it but there's not much else. So Athens and Sparta each they send gifts to the oracle at Delphi. Remember, this is the prophetic oracle, if you want to call it that. And Paul has a run-in with the lady with the prophetic spirit in Philippi centuries later. And it's interesting how the spirit remains even after all this time. Well, the oracle has all sorts of prophecies, and these Greeks need encouragement. Instead, they receive doom. When the Athenians receive word from the oracle at Delphi, this is how it reads. Wretches, why sit you here? Fly to the ends of creation. Quitting your homes in the crags which your city crowns with their circlet. Neither the head nor the body is firm in its place, nor at bottom. Firm the feet, nor the hands, nor resteth the middle injure, uninjured. All, all ruined and lost, since fire and impetuous ours. Speeding along in a Syrian chariot, haste to destroy her. Not alone shall thy suffer, but many of the towers he will level. Many of the shrines of the gods he will give to a fiery destruction. Even now they sit with dark sweet, horribly dripping, trembling and quaking with fear, and lo, from the high roofs of trickleth black blood, sign a prophetic of hard distresses impending. Get ye away from the temple and brew it on the hills that await ye. The Athenians who take the oracle crazy serious, they freak out. They can't believe the doom and gloom they just received. They're all going to come to ruin. They send more gifts for another prophecy, hopefully for a favorable response. Pallas has not been able to soften the lord of Olympus, though she often prayed him and urged him with excellent counsel. Yet once more I address thee in words than adamant firmer, and when the foe shall have taken whatever the limit of key crops holds within it and all divine sikrath shelters, then far-seeing Jove grants this to the prayers of Athene. Safe shall the wooden wall continue for thee and thy children. Wait not the tramp of the horse nor the footman mightily moving over the land, but turn your hack to the foe and retire ye. Yet shall a day arrive when ye shall meet him in battle. Holy Salamis, thou shalt destroy the offspring of women when men scatter the seed or when they gather the harvest. This word, I mean, come on, it's really confusing. Um, in, in Athens, they're going to just like study it profusely. This word will be processed and debated all through all through Athenia, if you want to call it that. Different interpretations are out there of what it means. I mean, there's probably thousands of people studying the words of this Oracle of Delphi to figure out what it means. And, and, and we'll go through some of the debate um, later on, but um, that's <laughs> this is the word from their, you know, little G God of what they're supposed to do. Now, the warlike Spartans... They send a gift to the oracle at Delphi as well. The non-cultural warrior types from Sparta, they receive this word. O you men who dwell in the streets of broad Lacedaemonia, 
Either your glorious town shall be sacked by the children of Perseus, or in exchange must all through the whole Lacamonian country mourn for the loss of a king, descendant of great Hercules. He cannot be withstood by the courage of bulls nor of lions. Strive as they may. He is mighty as Jove, and there is not that shall stay him, till he have got for his prey for your king or the glorious city. And they take the oracle serious. I almost think it's more serious to the Spartans than the Athenians. And I'm so amazed that these Spartans who are so warlike, they're also so religious in their devotion to their gods. I mean, at Marathon, they wouldn't even go fight because a religious festival wasn't up yet. I mean, they're so superstitious and um, they're so tactically advanced in battle, but they also have these customs and traditions that they won't break. It's a super interesting culture. And the current king receives the prophecy, and he knows what must be done. What better glory is there to die in battle, he considers. The Persians continue their march south. The Spartans and the Thebians and the Thespians sent a small force to hold the Thermopylae Pass, a gorge, a pretty much the only route into the heart of Greece. Athens and their fleet would confront the Persian fleet off the coast. So this is kind of the combined approach of this, this league that the Greeks are forming. The Athenians, and you're going to see this happen, is uh, the Athenians are going to lead the navies, the, the naval forces. Well, the Spartans are going to lead on land. And you'll actually see this many years from now, um, that that's what the Athenians are known for, their, their democracy, their culture, even their navy. And, and, and the Spartans, they have this unbelievable army, and they are the land force of Greece. Um, and they send a force up. They're not going to send their whole army, which is super interesting, because again, there's a religious festival going on. And again, it's the time of a religious festival, and the Spartans are not willing to send their whole army yet. Instead, King Leonidas of Sparta leads his personal force of 300 Spartans north to confront the invaders. So it's like no one's willing to go fight yet because there's the, the um, spiritual festival going on, which is actually timed around this time of the Olympics, believe it or not, which is going on right now in Greece. So the, this Olympic um, time frame where the Olympics are going on are in kind of central Greece, there's also the spiritual festival going on. The Spartans won't go fight, but the king receives this word. He says, very well, I'll go. And Leonidas takes his 300 soldiers um, and a few other city-states join him in the process. Now, it's a little, you know, different accounts say the Spartans go with, uh, you know, the, the, the Thespians and the Thebans, and others say there's like 5,000 other soldiers, and there's all these different accounts. Probably the most common one is the, the this Spartans that go with 300, and the Thebans and the Thespians who go with them, maybe another 1,000 troops. Now, of those extra 1,000 troops, uh, there's going to be maybe about 600 of them that are going to stick with him through the battle. Um, there's going to be another 500 or so that will actually abandon him through the course of the battle. So it's mainly this force of 300 Spartans that I'll speak to them about the most. And this was his veteran soldiers, his best, and he was going to hold the pass for Greece to prepare for the Persian march. When Xerxes arrives at the pass... He saw a solid line of Greek soldiers blocking the pass. 
Xerxes' first contest in Greece. He started by sending his archers, which struck with fear, but did little to the heavily armored Greeks. The difference in the two armies was their armament. It's not that the Persians were not tough. They just didn't have body armor like the Greeks. They didn't war with giant spears and battle-honed tactics like these. The Persians excelled in high-mobility campaigns and rained down death with archers. The Greeks had a huge circular shield, each soldier. The Persians had a wicker shield. A wicker shield? Mobility meant nothing in a confined space. Archers could not pierce heavily armored soldiers. Spartans were an awesome helmet meant to terrify, and they had a huge shield, and they had like body armor, breastplates, say like shin guards or something crazy, and all their armor it faced forward. And when they worked together, they formed a bronze wall called a phalanx, and they moved forward with the huge spears, and it was a deadly wall crashing ahead. The formation didn't have an equal in Xerxes' army. Xerxes did have his elite immortals, a constant 10,000 men sworn to protect the king. They were the best in his army, but their armament was comparably terrible. They wielded great weapons, but few had full-length bronze armor. Wave after wave of Xerxes' army perished at the hands of Leonidas's men. Meanwhile at sea, the Athenians were confronting the Persian fleet. The Persians had something like 1,300 ships, and then they kind of split their forces, and they were going to surround the Greeks, and, and a freaky, enormous storm hit 400 ships that were broken off from the first Persian fleet and destroyed them. The remaining of the Persian ships, there was like 900 of them or more, they engaged the Athenians, their 400-plus ships, in what's known as the Battle of Artemisium. And the result was a bit of a draw. I mean, the Athenians were severely battered, but the Persians, they liked tons of ships too. But there were learnings from the engagement. Themistocles will later point out of the success that they had in tight, congested locations, while in the open sea, his ships didn't fare very well. And Xerxes continues to send soldiers against the Spartans. Bodies pile up. The Spartans used them as a barricade against arrows, and there were some great one-liners by Herodotus. One account has this story. One of the mornings prior to the daily engagement, and the battle went on for like seven days, the Spartans were all combing their hair and grooming themselves. And when some asked what they're doing, one of the quotes from varying accounts was, they're grooming themselves for death. Herodotus gives this one. Another line um, has one of Leonidas's men, hearing that Xerxes has so many archers that their arrows will blot out the sun, his response, then we will fight in the shade. Another account by who knows who, Xerxes tells Leonidas to surrender and turn over his weapons. His response, come and take him. And if you go today, and, and I read this somewhere, but if you go today, there's a statue um, in Thermopylae, kind of commemorating this battle, and there and there's Greek words, and it, the interpretation of them is, "Come and take them." Nothing is breaking through the hot gates, the hot springs near Thermopylae. They were closed to Xerxes, but Xerxes, he found someone, a local goat herder, who was told of a mountain way around the pass into the rear of the Spartans. Xerxes sends a sizable force to surround the Spartans, and he starts to finally close around these Greeks. At this stage, 
Leonidas starts to lose some of his soldiers, the, the ones from uh, the other city-states that were helping him. One of them defects. Another one, some stand with them, some, some leave. But the core is the 300, which stand with Leonidas. And eventually the Spartan force dwindles to a miserable force and just they die. The, the men start to fall because they're surrounded. Leonidas falls by the sword and there's a huge fight for his body. The Greeks would draw deeper into the gorge to find a better defense. And eventually nearly all of the 300 are killed to the man. And Xerxes clears the hot gates and he's able to continue his advance into Greece. The result of the battle... Tactically, Leonidas bought time that was much needed for his countrymen to prepare. Greece lost 300 of its best soldiers. Uh, Approximately 400 of the other city-states too lost soldiers. But Xerxes lost over 10,000. The pass was free once he cleared the carnage. Persian morale was miserably low after the battle. And if 300 could cause this much damage... How would it go for the rest of the campaign? The last stand, though a tactical and strategic loss for Persia, was a psychological blow to him and his soldiers. The Greeks were going to fight to the last man and make this a miserable campaign for him. The Greeks would rally and remember Thermopylae. The Spartan prophecy was fulfilled, and Leonidas heroically sacrificed to fulfill the word of prophecy and to achieve glory. Unfortunately, for Athens, Xerxes was marching right for it. Its army was hopelessly outnumbered, but they could still fight. Their navy had fought the Persians to a near draw. What will Athens do? We conclude this episode uh, with spiritual thoughts on this battle, um, as well as just historical parallels. 300 soldiers held off 250 thousand troops remember the usage a long time ago how Gideon was the first 300 feel free to listen to that one again Uh, and there's some references to this scene if 300 guys can hold back an army with full armor and excellent training think about it 300 against 250,000 outnumbered nearly a thousand to one a thousand to one Ephesians 6.10 Finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggles not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of the dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then. With the belt of truth buckled around your race, the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Psalm 91, the protection psalm, has these wild section. Psalm 91, 7. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. One thousand at your side, ten thousand at your right hand. Thousand to one odds again. I wonder if 
we're like that in the spirit at times. We have our armor on. We're filled with the Holy Spirit, but maybe we're just completely surrounded and we don't realize it. And maybe we can take on these kind of odds. And I remember going to the horse races some time ago, and the the odds uh, uh, for the least favorite sometimes were like 75 to 1 for the lesser-known horses and the jockeys. At Thermopylae, it was 1,000 to 1. God's okay with these odds. We should be when we're placed in these situations. Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. God has numerical superiority in the spirit. He has two-thirds of the angels, not one-third. But God is okay with bad odds as well. He sent Daniel into Babylon, a hedonistic culture surrounded by demons, and he thrived. The Greeks lost at Thermopylae because they didn't have armor in their rear. The armor of God has no armor in the rear either, but God has our back. The Greeks didn't have God pushing them ahead. The leopard and the goat will eventually take on the bear and the ram and destroy it. This is just round two, though, of the Persian Wars. Death will come some time from now. First, the Greeks will must build up their contribution to the world before they spread it. Thermopylae has so many historical comparisons. The Texans had their Thermopylae at the Alamo. They lost 200 men, and Santa Ana lost 600 men, but they were hopelessly outnumbered. The odds, of course, weren't the same. Not even close, but it was the last stand in American history. The Texans had a battle cry as they rallied for their independence. Remember the Alamo. Something similar is going to reinvigorate the outnumbered Greeks. Last stands are awesome in history. Some of them are notable, like this one or the Alamo. Some are stupid, like Custer's last stand. Reckless with little purpose. He had numerical and military superiority and no need to charge into thousands of your enemy with a tiny force when your larger one wasn't that far away. Frederick the Great resolved to fight to the end against Russia, Austria, and France. But a succession crisis in Russia saved his nation as its czar went from an enemy to an ally. Hitler decided to stand as well, and that there was no miracle the house of Brandenburg. Caesar at Alicia was the besieger, and he became the besieged. His works were turned outward, and superior engineering won the day. Being steadfast and faithful to the ground that you are given reveals amazing character. Some have done it in history out of stubborn, self-centered greed. Others had a powerful character. The Spartans showed incredible resolve at Thermopylae. They probably should have retreated at the end, if they could have. But they died to a man, and their enemies suffered over ten to one in casualties. When I consider steadfast character, Martin Luther comes to mind. He stood before a court that wants to judge him and excommunicate him. They asked him if he would withdraw his questions about theology, and his response Here I stand, I could do nothing else. Faithfulness and steadfast character. The Spartans, though not believers, they displayed what it looks like to fight together, to have armor and to be steadfast. They showed in many ways what the church should look like. 
standing firm, working together, fighting against innumerable odds in the Spirit, having faith in their spiritual armor and their weapons. Ephesians 6.10 Finally be strong in the Lord and His mighty power. Put on your full armor of God so that you may take your stand against the devil's schemes. A thousand may fall by your side, ten thousand by your right hand. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. When Eve sinned, the world was hurled into anarchy. The life of man was challenged with sin and temptation. But thanks be to God who has saved us and given us all the tools and resources and all the power to walk in freedom. And he has clothed us in his righteousness and his armor and filled us with his presence. What demonic horde can come against a true body of believers walking in authentic faith? Romans 8.35 What shall separate us from the love of Christ? So trouble or hardship or persecution, famine, nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors to him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor death, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's a programming note. Uh, we're going to take two weeks off, uh, the next couple weeks for Thanksgiving break, um, and when we return, we'll have uh, we'll wrap up the Persian Wars, and then after that, uh, Janelle is going to host a um, podcast on Esther. Have a good Thanksgiving, everyone, and thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Feel free to visit the website, share the Facebook page, or if you want to chat, email us at message to Kings at gmail.com.